0: Our scripture reading is a brief portion of Matthew chapter 12. So let us open to Matthew chapter 12. We'll begin reading at verse 22 and read through verse 37. Let us hear the word of God beginning at Matthew 12 verse 22 <clears throat> Then was brought unto him Jesus one possessed with the devil blind and dumb and he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw And all the people were amazed and said is not this the son of David But when the Pharisees heard it they said this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth good things, and an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. We read this far. On the basis of this passage and the entire word of God, we have the instruction of Lord's Day 20 in our Heidelberg Catechism the doctrine of which we consider this morning. Lord's Day 20. What dost thou believe concerning the Holy Ghost? First, that he is true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. Secondly, that he is also given me to make me, by a true faith, partaker of Christ, And all his benefits that he may comfort me and abide with me forever. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ our Christian faith is a Trinitarian faith. At the heart of our faith is the truth of the doctrine of the Trinity that there is one true God And yet there are three distinct divine persons who are that one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the centrality of this truth is highlighted by the fact that it occurs throughout Scripture in so many ways and by the fact that the most ancient of our Christian creeds and the most well-known, the most foundational, the Apostles' Creed is arranged in a Trinitarian fashion. We have thus far in our study of the creed, Looked at the doctrine of God the Father and creation and providence. We have now just finished the Bible's teaching about God the Son. Particularly as he came in our flesh to be our Savior. And we have gone through his state of humiliation in which he obtained for us all of the benefits of salvation. And we have just now finished his state of exaltation. In which state he applies those benefits he earned for us. Now we come to Lord's Day 20. The beginning of the last section of the creed which concerns the Holy Spirit. And there is a logical connection here. For the Lord Jesus Christ, in his state of exaltation in heaven, applies his benefits to us through the operation of the Holy Spirit. And thus, we cannot understand the word of God, the reality of our salvation, how it all works, Without an understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and how the Holy Spirit works. And Lord's Day 20 is a concise summary of what the Bible teaches us about the Holy Spirit. This morning, we're going to come at Lord's Day 20 from a different angle. We're going to use Matthew 20 verses 22, or Matthew 12: 22 through 37, as the road that we travel to get into the doctrine of the Spirit here in Lord's Day 20. And that gives us opportunity to consider a very interesting and somewhat difficult passage of Holy Scripture. So our theme is simply the Holy Spirit. And we're going to consider the doctrine of the Spirit under two points, two questions which we're going to answer this morning. In the first place, who is he? And then secondly, what is his work? Let's start by working through this somewhat difficult passage here in Matthew 12. And what is perhaps the most difficult part of this passage is the startling teaching of Jesus that there is such a thing as an unforgivable sin, namely the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that very teaching perhaps awakens in us a sense of fear. What does this mean? That is a frightening thing to hear about such a sin. And so we're going to work through this passage, see what is going on here, see what Jesus is teaching, and as we work through this passage, we will at the same time answer the question of the first point. Who is the Holy Spirit? The old man, Simeon. Remember him in Luke 2, when he held the infant Jesus in his arms? By the Holy Spirit, he prophesied these words in Luke 2, verse 34 and 35. Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against, that the thoughts of many hearts... May be revealed. And that prophecy would be fulfilled throughout Jesus' life. And here in Matthew 12 we see Simeon's words coming true. A sign to be spoken against. And the thoughts of many hearts being revealed. In Matthew 12 we have really three things here. We have... A miracle Jesus performs, we have a response to that miracle, and then we have Jesus' response to the response to his miracle. Jesus' response in which he reveals a penetrating insight into the thoughts of his adversaries, and in which he teaches us very important truths. So let's walk through these three parts of our Bible passage, beginning with the miracle. We're not told much about it other than a man possessed by a demon was brought to Jesus. This man was Under the power of one of Satan's agents. And this demon which dwelt inside of this man. Held his soul in spiritual shackles. His bondage was visibly evident. For the demon robbed him of his sight. He was blind. And robbed him of his power of speech. He was dumb or mute. He was bound with invisible iron. But his woe was visible to all. Jesus saved. By the word of his power. Jesus expelled this demon from this poor man. Dispossessed Satan and liberated his captive. Opening his eyes and opening his mouth. So that he might praise the God of his salvation. Iron bars. Jesus broke like clay. And the brazen gates of Satan's powers could do nothing but give way. the Son of God. And this miracle of Jesus, like all of his miracles, is a sign. It is a sign of his Messiahship. It is a sign of his power. The visible miracles that Jesus performed were illustrations for the eyes of the people showing them a spiritual reality that what Jesus does for people physically healing their diseases, casting out devils, that's what Jesus came to do spiritually. He came to break the iron bars of sin. He came to liberate Satan's captives. He came to liberate prisoners and bring them into the glorious liberty of the children of God. He is Jehovah's salvation who came to save his people from their sins. And that includes, as Lord's Day 1 says, delivering us from all the power of the devil. Now, that miracle had a response. And the response to Jesus' miracle in our passage was twofold. In the first place, the people, the onlookers, were amazed. Who could have such power as this To command and overcome the power of the devil which is beyond any human power. Could it be he is the one? They venture to make that suggestion. Could it be this is the son of David? This is the promised Messiah? But that mere suggestion was enough to elicit from others there present a very different reaction. The mere entertaining of the possibility that Jesus was the Christ was enough to stoke the wrath of the Pharisees who were there watching him. Jesus' inflexible, hard-hearted opponents who opposed him at every turn. Nothing upset them like the suggestion that Jesus was the Christ. And thus with hardness of heart and iron-willed opposition to the Son of God, these men scornfully spin their own explanation of the miracle that took place right before their eyes. And they give their own explanation in verse 24. This fellow, and you hear the scorn in that, answering the suggestion of the people, is this the son of David? They say, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. What they're saying is, yes, this man cast out a devil, but the power by which he cast out the demon was by the power of Satan himself. Beelzebub, that's a strange word, it's a strange name. It literally means lord of flies. And this name goes back to the Old Testament. You can read it in 2 Kings 1, verses 2 and 6. It was a name originally belonging to Baal. And this name came to be attributed to Satan as an expression of Israel's abhorrence for the devil. The devil came to be given that name, Beelzebub. So the name Beelzebub is referring to Satan. And it expresses the vileness and the wickedness of the devil. And so what the Pharisees are saying here is that Jesus is in league with Satan. And Jesus employs Satan's own power to expel this demon. They basically say Jesus is an instrument of the devil. And the devil is the source of his power. That leads us now to the third part of our Bible passage, Jesus' response. And Jesus here knows the thoughts of the Pharisees. He perceives what's going on in their minds. He understands what they're whispering among themselves. And so he gives a four-pronged reply and rebuttal. Four parts to it. First, Jesus shows the absurdity of their portrayal of him, and their suggestion that it is by the power of Satan that he casts out devils. Jesus shows the absurdity of their position in verses 25 and 26. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How Shall then his kingdom stand. And you follow Jesus' cogent line of reasoning. Why would Satan cast out his own agents? Satan does not oppose Satan. That would be the most foolish thing for Satan to do. Everyone knows that a kingdom divided against itself, at war with itself, is going to be brought to desolation. Every house that is divided against itself, at war with itself, is going to fall or collapse. Satan is a liar. Satan is a murderer. But one thing you cannot say about Satan is that he is incompetent. Satan does not foolishly attack his own kingdom by expelling his own Agents. The suggestion of the Pharisees is simply absurd. They are grasping at straws in an attempt to dismiss the plain miracle Jesus has performed by the power of God right before their eyes. Besides, Jesus points out their hypocrisy now in verse 27. And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils... By whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. This verse indicates that there were children of the Pharisees, and children of the Pharisees means students, followers of the Pharisees. They were going around casting out demons as well. In the name of God, presumably. Now whether or not those children of the Pharisees actually did cast out devils is is not important. It's possible. Think of Matthew 7 Where Jesus speaks of those who did great wonders in his name. Even cast out devils but were not his people. It's possible. But Jesus' point here is, you Pharisees are being inconsistent. You're using a double standard. You see a plain miracle of the expulsion of a demon and you say, that can only be by the power of the devil. And yet your own disciples do or claim to do the same thing. Your own disciples would reject your argument and judge you for it. So that's the first of Jesus' four pronged reply. Next, Jesus goes on to explain by whose power he actually casted or cast out this demon. Now we look at verses 28 through 30. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. And Jesus here isn't throwing this out as a possibility. He's stating, this is actually what happened here. Or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. By the power of the Spirit, Jesus performed this miracle. And that makes sense. The Holy Spirit of God is the one who empowered Jesus Christ in our flesh to perform his messianic mission. To carry out the work that the Father gave him. Go back to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. To the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. His baptism at the Jordan River. And after he comes from the water, what happens? God the Father speaks from heaven. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. Picturing that Jesus is given the Spirit without measure to equip and empower him to perform his mission, to complete his work. Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, carried out his messianic ministry all the way to the end. In fact, it was by the power of the Spirit that Jesus offered himself on the cross and finished his work. Hebrews 9 Verse 14 says that it was through the eternal spirit that he offered himself without spot to God. And so Jesus' point is, this miracle that I have performed before your eyes, casting out Satan's agents, is a visible demonstration that I am the Christ who has come to destroy the kingdom of the devil. The kingdom of God has come in the person of the king himself who comes conquering. But conquering in the most marvelous way. His power is brought to bear through his own suffering and death. Look, Jesus says, I put Satan on his heels. I shrink Satan's territory. There is only one explanation for this miracle you have seen. I have bound the strong man and spoiled his house. Jesus uses an illustration. It's an interesting one. If you're going to rob a house, and the owner of the house is a strong man, you're not going to get very far unless you restrain, you bind, you incapacitate that strong man. Then you can spoil his goods, take all of his riches out of his house. And Jesus uses that as a vivid illustration for the miracle he just performed. Jesus has the power to bind Satan, the strong man, Who held that poor man captive. Jesus bound the strong man. And Jesus spoiled that sector of Satan's kingdom. He burst the iron bars of Satan's power asunder. And liberated Satan's captive. Spoiling Satan's goods. And bringing that man out of darkness. Into the light of spiritual salvation. And freedom from the devil's power. By freeing this man, Jesus saved, cast down Satan, and shrank his kingdom. The Point is, this miracle is a sign. The kingdom is coming in the person of her king. And then thirdly, having explained the real source of the power by which Jesus cast out the demon, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus goes on to point out the depravity of the Pharisees' portrayal of him and their suggestion that it is by Satan's power that he cast out the devil. Jesus points out the depravity of the Pharisees' suggestion now in verses 31 and 32. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Neither in this world, neither in the world to come. He points out what a heinous sin these leaders of the people had committed. So deep seated is their hatred of Christ. So entrenched is their rejection of Him. That even when they are confronted with the clearest visible manifestation of the Spirit of the living God. They revile it. They revile Him. And they portray the Spirit's work through the Christ as something accomplished through the agency of Satan himself. Their words are the overflow of their depraved hearts. These men knowingly, deliberately, willfully blaspheme the Holy Spirit through whom Jesus had performed this miracle. And Jesus puts his finger right upon that sin. Right upon the depravity of his adversaries. And that then leads to the fourth prong of his response. Jesus, as he so often does, the master teacher that he was, he turns the tables and he exposes his opponents for who they are. And that's really the rest of our our Bible reading, verses 33 through 37. He He refutes their assertion and exposes their hearts to be hard as steel and rotten as can be. They call the greatest light the greatest darkness. And so Jesus uses another illustration. That of a tree. Both Jesus and his adversaries are like trees. And the health and the goodness of a tree is manifest by the fruit it bears. The good fruit of Jesus' miracle casting out the devil... Destroying Satan's kingdom. Bringing salvation. Manifests him as good and true. Manifests him to be exactly who he has shown himself to be. The Christ of God. But his adversaries, out of the abundance of their hearts, speak such blasphemous things. Indeed, they have uttered a capital blasphemy. Such rotten fruit can only arise from a thoroughly dead tree. And dead they are. And thus this whole episode only serves to manifest all the more that Jesus is the Christ. And bring to light that his adversaries are the real children of Beelzebub. So, in this Bible history, Jesus puts The Pharisees to silence. But now let's come back to verses 31 and 32. What about this startling, somewhat frightening teaching about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus himself designates as the unpardonable sin? A sin in a class all by itself. Such that every person who commits this sin is surely eternally condemned. How do we understand this? What do we do with this teaching? So let's walk through it a little more closely. Blasphemy. Blasphemy is a term that can refer to a category of sins. Blasphemy is simply to revile in thought or words, often in words, to revile, scorn, or hold God in contempt, or otherwise irreverently misuse his holy name. And if your mind goes back to what you know of Lord's Day 36 and its summary of the second commandment, you know that blasphemy is among those misuses of God's name that so provoke his holy wrath. Few sins kindle God's Displeasure the way the misuse of his name does. Blasphemy is a very serious sin. Offensive to God. And yet in verse 31 and 32. Jesus teaches us the marvelous expansiveness of the grace and mercy of God. In that he says all manner of blasphemy shall be forgiven. Blasphemy is a sin God's people commit. Think of Peter cursing as he denied his Lord. Or 1 Timothy 1 verse 13 where Paul reflects upon his life as an unbeliever and calls himself a blasphemer who obtained mercy. Blasphemy is a forgivable sin and that's a great, great comfort to us all because all of us have misused God's name at one time or another. All of us have violated the third commandment. And yet, the gracious mercy of God in Jesus Christ covers those sins. But Jesus says in verse 31, There is one particular kind of blasphemy that is unpardonable. All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And he explains further in verse 32, Whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, against Jesus Christ, God, the Son in our flesh, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Neither in this world, neither in the world to come. What does that mean? It means... That the sin of, the bla- of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is so heinous in God's eyes that He has determined He will not forgive that sin. It's not that there is some sin that is just so great that Jesus' blood is powerless to cover it. That's not the idea. But God in His sovereign will has determined this sin is unforgivable. It is the most heinous. Sin. What is it then? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that distinguishes it from all other kinds of blasphemy and evil speaking towards God? And here, going back to the context will help us. Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees shows us what this sin is. Jesus doesn't just bring out this teaching for no reason. But it's connected with what happened. What the Pharisees said to him. The Pharisees, remember, were just confronted with the visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit's gracious power bringing salvation. And these Pharisees saw it. And they recognized it for what it was. And they hated it. And they refused to acknowledge it. And instead, they reviled it. They didn't want the people following Christ. They would take away from their influence, their power, their position. Jesus' teaching did not fit with their false conception of the Word of God. And so they set themselves to be the fierce opponents of God, of His Christ, and of the operation of His Spirit. These men knew what they were doing knowingly, deliberately, Willfully, they revile the Holy Spirit and His work and attribute it to Satan instead. That's the blasphemy of the Spirit. That blasphemy of the Spirit is the ultimate manifestation of hardness of heart and hatred towards God. It is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief, of impenitence, of hatred for God. It is the capital sin, you might say, that shows a person to be a reprobate son of Beelzebub. And so at this point, a couple of things need to be emphasized with regard to Jesus' teaching about the unpardonable sin. First, an application of comfort, and then second, an application of warning. First, an application of comfort to believers. This passage maybe frightens us a little bit to hear about such a thing as an unpardonable sin. But we must understand that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, is a sin that is impossible for any elect believer to commit. Because God preserves His elect so that they do not fall into this sin. In fact, our Reformed creeds speak about that. If you look in the Canons of Dort, back to the fifth head of doctrine, Article 6, the Canons of Dort speak to this in connection with the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. The preservation of the saints is those who God has chosen to eternal life, He saves and He keeps them saved. He preserves them by the power of His Spirit. And nothing that the devil does, nothing that the world does, nothing that you do can ever pluck you and throw you out of the hands of your Savior. And so the preserving grace of God ensures that an elect child of God will never commit this sin. Canons 5, Article 6. But God who is rich in mercy, according to His unchangeable purpose of election, does not wholly withdraw the Spirit from his own people, even in their melancholy falls, nor suffers them to proceed so far as to lose the grace of adoption and forfeit the state of justification, or to commit the sin unto death. And that's a reference to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Using the language of 1 John 5, Verses six through eight, which you can look at later, there. First John, five verses six through eight, alludes to the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and the Canons is saying an elect believer cannot commit that sin. The Spirit does not permit them to be totally deserted and to plunge themselves to everlasting destruction. You see believing people of God you have the spirit in you you have the holy spirit dwelling in you and the holy spirit who dwells in you will not will not let you stumble and fall that far so as to blaspheme him the blasphemy of the holy spirit can only arise from a head or from a heart that is hard and dead and devoid of the spirit of god So that in the first place. God preserves his people. You have the spirit dwelling in you. And then now this. Believer, you have faith. You believe in Christ. And faith is a fruit of the spirit. A believer who believes in Christ cannot blaspheme the spirit who is the author of that faith. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the ultimate expression of unbelief. At times our faith is very weak. And in the weakness of our faith we sin against God. We even blaspheme our God. But again, the Spirit who preserves and the Spirit who indwells and the Spirit who sustains our faith keeps us. The only one who can blaspheme the Spirit is the one who is spiritually dead. And believer, you're not dead anymore. The Lord and giver of life dwells in you. But now sometimes believers have this fear. What if I committed this sin before? What if I committed this before I believed? Am I lost forever? Am I unredeemable? There have been throughout history many of God's people who have been vexed by that question. Struggled with it. Terror in their hearts and minds. What if? And the word of God has comfort. That takes away that fear which no believer needs to have. Look again at the Pharisees. The committers of this sin. They are utterly remorseless. There is no faith in them. They would do that sin again and indeed they probably did. It's the rock bottom of hardness of heart. You see, a person who blasphemes the Holy Spirit or who has blasphemed the Holy Spirit never has genuine sorrow for sin because that genuine sorrow for sin comes from the saving work of the Holy Spirit. If someone has blasphemed the Holy Spirit, they will never hunger for Christ or yearn for his pardon or be sorry for their sin or even fear and grieve on account of that sin. Hunger for Christ, yearning for his pardon, sorrow for sin. Those are fruits of the Spirit themselves which demonstrate you have never committed this sin. The pastoral counsel that many have given throughout the ages to God's people who have been vexed by that question is sound. Many pastors have said the mere fact that you are concerned about this demonstrates you have not committed this sin. One who has blasphemed the Holy Spirit is utterly remorseless and has no interest in Christ for his pardon. And so beloved people of God. If, if this is a passage that has scared you in the past. Or you've wrestled with that question. Let that fear be put to rest. You who know the sorrow of sin. You who hunger for Christ. You who yearn for forgiveness. You who feel in your hearts the love of God. Those fruits of the Spirit are evidence. Never has this sin been committed by you and never will it ever be committed by you. Fear not. But now the necessary warning. Election, preservation, the doctrines of God's grace are comforting and rightly so, but they may never be used as an excuse for carelessness or carnal security this text mustn't be brushed off as if, okay, there's nothing here at all to take heed to. There is a sharp warning to impenitent sinners. And it's a sharp warning because of this. Impenitence in sin leads in a direction. Impenitence doesn't stay put. When a man hardens his heart and continues in impenitent sin and rejects the Word of God and grieves the Spirit, resists the Spirit, quenches the Spirit, he is walking down a road that eventually leads to the rock bottom of the blasphemy of the Spirit. That's the road these Pharisees had walked. And so there is a warning to any who may be living in impenitent sin and refusing to turn You are persistently grieving the Spirit. You are resisting the Spirit. You may get to the point where you quench the Spirit. You are making yourself harder and harder in your sin. And beware, that is the path that leads to destruction. Don't walk down that road. Hear the urgent call of the Word of God. Repent. Turn. Forsake that sin. And cast yourself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. We've spent a long time now working through this difficult passage. And hopefully, Lord willing, brought some clarity and comfort that believers need not fear what is taught here about the unpardonable sin. But now, let's notice. As we've gone through this passage and looked at what the sin of the blasphemy of the Spirit is, we've answered the first question point and its question. Who is he? Who is the Holy Spirit? This passage shows us the Holy Spirit is a person, is a person. Thus, the, the first point is worded correctly. We don't ask what is it, but who is he? He's a person. You can't blaspheme a thing. You can't blaspheme a power a tool, an instrument, a force. You can only blaspheme a person, a distinct person. And the text here brings that out. The Holy Spirit is not just a force that God exerts. He's not a mere power by which God gets something done, but He is a person distinct from Christ the Son and God the Father. Jesus speaks about him that way here in our Bible reading. He speaks of blasphemies against the Son of Man and distinguishes from that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Designating thereby that the Holy Spirit is another person. And all of the scripture portrays the Holy Spirit this way. Yes, he is the personal agent by which God accomplishes salvation. And sometimes the scripture even speaks of the Holy Spirit in terms of a power, because it is through the Spirit that the power of God is brought to bear. But the Bible speaks about the Spirit as a person. The Spirit speaks, the Spirit teaches, the Spirit dwells, the Spirit can be grieved. That kind of language can only be used to describe a person. But now to take it farther. This passage shows that the Holy Spirit is not just any person, but he is a divine person. This passage has proved the doctrine set forth in the first part of answer 53, that he, the Holy Spirit, is true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. You can't blaspheme a mere human being. You can insult, you can scorn, you can ridicule, you can revile. There are all sorts of sins of the tongue that can be committed against another person. But you can only blaspheme, in the strict sense, God. And if there is such a thing as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it must needs follow that the Holy Spirit is God. And if Jesus says... That blasphemy against Him, the Son of God in the flesh, is pardonable. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the one unpardonable sin. that shows us that at very least, the Holy Spirit is nothing less than Christ Himself. And there the Scriptures show us, in one of so many ways, that the Spirit is co-eternal. Meaning the Spirit is equal, eternal, shares all of the same attributes as the Father and the Son. He is the one true God, the third person of the Trinity. Well now let's briefly answer the second question. What is His work? We've seen who He is. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. What is his work? So much could be said about the Holy Spirit's work, but our catechism narrows our focus and highlights the Spirit's role in the outworking of our salvation. And the catechism sets before us three main things that we're going to look at. First, that the Spirit is given me. That's number one. And then number two, he has given me to make me, by a true faith, partaker of Christ and all his benefits. And then three, that he may comfort me and abide with me forever. Those are the three main works of the Spirit in salvation. So first, there is this astounding reality, this astounding confession that we make. The Holy Spirit is given to me. What a gift. God the Father gave his only begotten Son to be the propitiation for our sins. But the Father's gift giving to His elect children doesn't stop there. Having given His only begotten Son, and the only begotten Son having accomplished the work given Him to perform, the Father also sends forth His Spirit. First giving the Spirit to Christ, and Christ pours out the Spirit as His own Spirit to impart and apply to us all the benefits that Christ earned for us. Christ incarnate is the gift of God and the Spirit poured out is the gift of God. That's what happened on Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was given to Christ, our exalted head. And Christ, our exalted head, poured out His Spirit upon His church. And it is through the Spirit of Christ then that we are connected to our Savior. He is our head and we are the members of His body. The anointing that he received, the anointing of the Spirit flows down from the head to all of his members. Just as the Spirit came upon Jesus Christ to equip him for his ministry, the Spirit comes down upon the redeemed in Christ to strengthen and empower us to live unto him and to do the work of bringing into our possession all that we have in Christ. So that's first. The Spirit is given us to dwell in us. And as He dwells in us, He preserves us and He works so that all of the blessings of salvation earned on the cross are brought into our possession. And that's what the second thing here in the Catechism is getting at. When it speaks of the Spirit making me a partaker of Christ and all His benefits. What that means is the Spirit works to unite you to Jesus. Connect you to him with an unbreakable spiritual bond. So that from Christ you receive and share in and have applied to you and enjoy all of the benefits of Christ. Spirit unites you to him. That's what the Bible means when it speaks of being in Christ 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. That means connected to him, united to him. And the Holy Spirit is the one who does that uniting work. He grafts you into Christ the way a branch is grafted into a vine. Ultimately, we can say the Holy Spirit himself is our living union with Christ because he dwells in Christ the head and dwells in each of us his members. And he is the one who works to draw from Christ all the benefits stored up in him and apply them to us. The Spirit is our living union with our Savior. and What a comfort that is. This is a union. This is a bond that cannot be broken. Nothing can sever the tie that binds us to our Savior. Having united us to Christ, the Spirit makes us partaker of His benefits. The first benefit He makes us to partake of is life. He is the Lord and giver of life, as the Nicene Creed says. He gives spiritual life. By nature, our bodies are alive, but our souls are dead. By nature, we're dead in sin. And the first work of the Spirit, when He comes and unites us to Christ, is He enters our heart and He makes us alive. He gives us a new heart. That's what regeneration is. He translates us out of death into spiritual life. There's a spiritual resurrection that is accomplished by implanting the life of Christ into us. That's regeneration, or as the Bible terms it, new spiritual birth, being born again. And having given you that new spiritual life, the Spirit gives you the gift of faith. He's the author of faith. Faith is the means by which we consciously partake of Christ, draw strength from Him each day of our lives. When you were born physically, you were born with the power of sight. And from infancy, you mature and that power of sight matures. Similarly, when we are born again by the Spirit, we are born again with the Spirit-given power of spiritual sight, which is faith. And as the Spirit works in us, He cultivates that gift He gave us. He brings our faith to conscious expression so that we come to know God, to know Christ, and to trust Him. In our spiritual infancy, the Spirit uses the milk of the Word to strengthen that faith. And throughout our lives, as He brings us to spiritual maturity, He uses the meat of the Word to nourish us. Indeed, the Spirit's choice tool is the Word. He uses the word to feed, to nourish, to strengthen us. He is the one who makes you a partaker of Christ. Once and for all. And as he dwells in you, he keeps you a partaker of Christ. Jumping down to the last part of the the answer in Lord's Day 20. He abides with me forever forever. If he abides with you forever, that means he makes you a partaker of Christ forever. Not only will you never be severed from Christ, but the Spirit's work in you is that he ensures that you keep on partaking of Christ and his benefits. He'll never leave. He'll never forsake you. Even when in sin you grieve him, resist him, quench him. He abides. Faithful. He keeps your faith alive. Even when we are spiritually weakest, even when we are those of little faith, even when our faith, perhaps when we're struggling with sin or we're going through a hardship, our faith is like a sputtering flame. The Spirit kindles it and keeps it from ever going out. He's the one that makes the Word effective in us. He illuminates our understanding so that we can read or hear the Scriptures and know what it means and have it applied to our hearts. He prepares the soil of our hearts for the ingrafted Word. He pricks. He comforts. He convicts of sin. He brings us to our knees in repentance. When we are comforted by the Gospel, it is because He is working in our hearts to apply that Gospel to us. When we experience the peace of God. It is because the spirit who is the comforter. Is at work in us. That's the Holy Spirit in his work. He keeps us partaking of Christ. And that means he also sanctifies us. He makes us holy. More and more. Little by little. Throughout our lives. He's the one. By whose power we turn from sin. He's the one. By whose power we are converted. Sin is mortified through the Spirit. The new man is quickened by the power of the Spirit. He applies all that we have in Christ. And the Spirit's application is just as sovereign and gracious as Christ's obtaining of those gifts upon the cross. That's the work of the Spirit. Finally, we end where the Catechism does. On a high note, a wonderful note. He's our comforter. Spirit dwells in us to bring into our possession all that we have in Christ. And as He works in us, He makes us conscious. He speaks to us through the word of the gospel. And in that way, He comforts us. Jesus said in John 14 verse 16, I will pray the Father and He shall give you another comforter that He may abide with you forever. That's a name of the Spirit. That is who He is to you. Comforter. And He comforts by pointing us time and time again to Christ. Jesus would later say in the same discourse in John 15:26, when the comforter is come, he shall testify of me. That's his comforting work. Christ pointing to Christ, what Christ has done, what Christ is still doing for you through the spirit He who created your faith keeps your eyes pointed towards Christ so that you behold him and what he has done, and there is comfort and peace. The Spirit comforts you by applying through the gospel the sprinkling of Christ's blood to you so that your conscience is quieted, that you have that peace that passes all understanding. I'm redeemed by the blood of Christ, and nothing. No one can ever unredeem me. And so, beloved, let us find comfort in this truth Lord's Day 20 sets before us. What a gift. The Spirit. What a power. Let us walk in newness of life, depending upon the Spirit of Christ. And let us thank the God of our salvation. By walking no more in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we pray that this word may be a comfort to our hearts. As we have studied a difficult teaching of our Lord, may we at the same time be warned that we be turned from sin, but also comforted. In the certainty of thy preserving grace. May we also give thee thanks for the gift of the Spirit. Who makes us partaker of Christ. and all his benefits. And keeps us partaking of him. Until that last day when the Spirit's work is finished. And we with all of thy people shall be presented before Christ our Bridegroom. Without spot or wrinkle. In the assembly of the elect. In life eternal. Amen.